Good morning. It's good to, good to see all of you. I hope you got a, a nice uh, full rest of sleep last night in the midst of all the uh, explosions and landmines and everything else. You're, you're, you're still surviving the, the closed down and shut in. It's good to see that. Um, Perhaps by now you've, you've, uh, you've binge-watched everything that you should have binge-watched and a few things that you shouldn't, and you're wondering what else you'll do with, all, with your time at home. And uh, there is a bookcase in the back next to the sound booth over here with, with uh, books in that. Those are, those are for you to take and read and then pass on to somebody else that they would read them as well. So I encourage you to do that. There's a, there's a new book over there that I'm really excited about. It's called 30 Days in the Land of the Book. It's a devotional tour of Israel. And um, uh, I don't get any proceeds out of this book, uh, so don't, uh, in fact, take it, please, for free if you, will, if you will read it, then pass it on to somebody else that they might read it as well. I get nothing out of it other than to have the joy of being able to share something of the land of the book with you. If you have something against grace and taking something for free, then just on your way out with the offering boxes near the exits, just put a, a substantial offering in that for the book, and that would be wonderful. The church will be grateful for that. Again, not for me, but uh, would love to share some of that with you. So, so. Take advantage of that. There's a few kids this morning. We haven't had a kids talk in a while. We haven't been able to gather them up front. But I wanted to start with a, a, a different story that connects to today's text. And that all comes all the way back in Genesis to the um, story of Joseph. Kids, you've heard the story of Joseph. He was, he was, he was still young when his brothers did him his brothers did him wrong, right? That's the problem with older siblings. Some of you are a younger sibling, and you, that's a problem with older brothers. You know, they, sometimes they're not nice. And uh, his older brothers sold him away, and he becomes a slave and a servant in Egypt. He works for the chief official of the king. There's a turn of events, and there's a scandal. There's injustice against him. He's falsely charged. He's, he's, he's in danger of being executed. But Joseph also has, has an ability given to him by God to interpret, understand dreams. And so the king, the pharaoh, has a dream, and Daniel's able to interpret it. And Daniel, who was a slave and a servant, a captive, taken away from his home, is now lifted up and becomes the, the chief advisor to the king of Egypt, which is like being the king of the world at that time. And God uses him there not only, there's a, there's a dream that he has, and the dream involves really fat and fit cows, and also some skinny cows. And Joseph interprets that dream in such a way that it helps protect, save the lives of many in Egypt, and God also uses him in, in, in a time of famine to save the lives of the very brothers who sold him into slavery. That's Joseph. I told you that story to tell you this one. Fast forward hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the story of Daniel. And Daniel's a young guy. And like Joseph, Daniel is, is taken captive away into a foreign land. And there he's made to be a servant. But as a servant, because God's, God's help is with Daniel, Daniel's able to understand dreams and visions and give God's meaning for what God is communicating in this special kind of dream. And, and God actually lifts, protects Daniel and lifts Daniel up so that, so that he becomes the, you got, you got it, the, the advisor, the chief advisor to the king of this empire Babylon. 
God uses him to save that king eventually, as well as many others. And when, you, when we read Daniel's story, we hear about Daniel also works for a chief official. Daniel, Daniel has a dream, and in the, well, in, in the course of Daniel's story, you have the same fit and fat and better. This time it's, it's boys rather than cows, but the same kind of terms are used. The same chief official term is used. And the point is this. Daniel and his friends... And others who heard about Daniel's story, even later, they're supposed to think, aha, when they read Daniel, they're supposed to think of Joseph. Daniel's story over here is a lot like Joseph's story over here. Why do I tell you all that? You learn stories from your parents at home. You learn stories in the Bible, right? The reason you learn those stories is this is how God has been true to people in the past. And he continues to be true to people like Joseph, to, David, to Daniel, to Israel, and to us. So read those stories. Learn those stories. And don't think of it as just Joseph's story or Daniel's story. You trust Jesus and let God's taking care be your story too, okay? Well, we are going to uh, be in the story of Daniel this morning. And I wanted to be in Daniel for a while, but then the, then, uh, and I've, I've had plans to start a series of the book of Daniel, and then the COVID close down came, and we, we needed to talk about several of the things that arose. But as some of those things arose, again, some of those topics were the same topics that were in the book of Daniel. We were in Daniel chapter 9 last week. So we're a little out of order, but I've, I've circled around again, and I do want to spend a little time reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness in this story of Daniel, this book of Daniel, the account of Daniel's life in a difficult and chaotic age, a time when there's many similarities. A lot of people have been talking for a while about the, the um, church in exile, that there are things that we need to learn from Israel's exile experience, how they, how they prospered there, how God used them in the midst of exile. There's things that the church can learn from that. And at the same time, as we, as we approach Daniel chapter 1, one of my, one of my um, concerns is that this is a fairly well-known story. It is that story that you, that you tell your kids and so, because it's a well-known story, sometimes we don't hear it anymore. So I thought, well, it'd be good to, to hear this story firsthand. It could be helpful to hear this story from, from the perspective of somebody that, that um, was actually there, first person, as these events unfolded. I'm happy to be here today as the humble servant Ashpenaz, the chief of staff to the greatest of kings, Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful, long may he reign. You see, my king is a, is, is a, a marvelous man. He, he, he is one of the greatest heroes of our Babylonian history. 
His exploits started early in the year 606. He led his father's troops against the wicked Assyrians. He defeated the the last of their armies. He was just 23 years old. The following year, in 605, that, that pretender Pharaoh Necho came marching up from Egypt and he met Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon's armies there at Carchemish. You see, Pharaoh thought that he would, he would himself appropriate and gather in the, the southern remnants of Assyria's former empire. Judah and Samaria, Damascus and Syria. But he met my king, Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful, long may he reign. And my king was, was successful. He was merely the crown prince then. And he defeated Pharaoh's army. Well, after that, Nebuchadnezzar himself turned south towards Syria and Damascus, Judah and Jerusalem. After all, somebody now needed to attend to these places which the Pharaoh of Egypt had now left unattended. And so we came to Jerusalem, which had been a vassal state, a servant of the Pharaoh and Egypt. And their king, Jehoiakim, he doesn't, didn't seem to have any real convictions. Je- Jehoiakim very quickly, when he realized that Egypt and Pharaoh were not coming back, he very quickly changed his allegiance to Babylon, swore loyalty to us. But somebody who will change their loyalties so quickly is probably not to be trusted. In order to help ensure, encourage, to encourage Judah's continuing faithfulness to Babylon, we found a way to help them. You see, Judah was in this dangerous land in between, between Babylon and Egypt. It was not a safe neighborhood. And so they had these valuable articles that decades before their king had shown to us there in their temple. And we said, you know, we will take some of these and we will keep them safe for you. We will take them from Jerusalem and we will put them into the treasure storehouse of our God in Babylon. They'll be much safer there. We came to realize much later in the process that it wasn't so much that that our God had been stronger and was able to go into Judah's God's house and take his stuff. That's the way we imagined it at the time. But no, actually, later we realized it was more like Judah's God had given them into our hands. Not unlike those precious articles from their temple, we had another means of encouraging ongoing faithfulness. That we would would gather together the the, out of the youth of Jerusalem, out of the sons of their of their rulers and their nobles, the, the youth, the uh, young students out of their elite families, those who had distinguished themselves showing an ability to learn, to understand, to be potential leaders. And we gathered them up and we, we made them an offer that they could not refuse. We insisted that they accept a full-ride scholarship to the University of Babylon. After all, such a wonderful institution and such a wonderful city. 
Who would not want to study with us at the University of Babylon? Be careful. There's only one right answer in this new era. And so we gathered them up and off to Babylon that we came. Our, our king was at this point only 24 years old, but this is where he becomes king because, you see, he had to hurry back to Babylon. His father had just died. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the crown prince, now becomes King Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful, long may he reign. It seemed a little odd, uh, maybe to some of you, to put the whole world in charge of a 24-year-old. But I had long ago learned that in relation to the crown prince, and now certainly as the king, that I, I would go along in order to get along. I would go along in order to stay alive. And so he left to me this task of gathering these youth. And our plan was that we would take those with the greatest potential and we would take them to Babylon and we would give them a three-year education in the literature and the language of the Babylonians. They would learn all about Babylon and our culture and our worldview. They would learn about, about the, the world as it ought to be from a perspective of Babylon and our goals and our gods. Not only that, we would give them while they were there the, the, the best of food and drink. They would eat from the king's own royal provisions, food from the king's table. After such an experience and such good food and such a great city, they wouldn't even want to leave the big city and go back to Judah, that land in between, what you would call flyover country. Well, after three years then, we would, we would examine them and how they had done and what their potential was, and the best and the brightest, they would form a new core of loyal advisors, loyal to the young king because he had elevated them. He had placed them in their positions. Sure, the king had many other administrators and officials like me who were left over from his father's previous administration. But these would be those that Nebuchadnezzar himself had raised up. These would be those whose loyalty was only to him. All that fresh, young energy and idealism. It was kind of exciting, right? Yet at the same time, it, well, maybe it's kind of like handing over the whole church to the youth pastor and his crew. But in Babylon, it worked. And so... We, we gave them a new life in a new place with, with a new education, a new perspective. We even gave them new names because we knew in this college experience, in this University of Babylon education, this was the ideal opportunity to impose a whole new worldview. In fact, not only would we change their minds and hearts and shape them in the way that we wanted, get them to think the way that we wanted them to think, but in this intensive education experience away from their home, we could, we could also give them a whole new identity and outlook. In fact, we even gave them new names. You see, their old names connected them to their past, to their roots, those things that we wanted them to forget or at least to leave behind and move on from. 
For instance, one was named Daniel, which means Elohim is my judge. Another, Hananiah, means, means, Elo, means that Yahweh is gracious. There was Mishael, who, whose name means who is like Elohim. There was Azariah, whose name means Yahweh is my help. Those names wouldn't do in the future. And so we gave them new names, names that would connect them to the gods and the worldview of Babylon. We, see, we wanted to reshape them. We wanted to form a whole new identity in them as men of Babylon, not followers of Yahweh. And so things seemed, seemed quite well, and, and uh, yet one of those young men came to me pretty early. His name was Belshazzar. And Belshazzar came to me, and, and he said that he also had heard that while we were there in, in, in Jerusalem still, just before we were leaving, we assumed that, that uh, we were doing this in order to force Judah to remain with us. That we were taking away some of their own that would be lost to them. Many thought that those ones being taken away as early captives to Babylon, that they must be being punished for some reason. But there was, while we were still there, there was a preacher there, a radical named Jeremiah. And he had a different take on it that I thought was kind of unusual. He, he preached this message. He called it, well, he referred to in this message, he, he referred to baskets of figs. There, were, there was a basket of good figs, and there was a basket of rotten figs. Well, I, I, I only save the good ones, because what good are rotten figs, right? Hmm. Now, these figs, they're, they're kind of like a gluten-free fig newton. They're really kind of nice. But Jeremiah, when he talked about good figs and bad figs, everybody thought that, well, the good figs are the ones that get to stay behind in Jerusalem, and the bad figs are the ones that are being carried off and lost. Actually, Jeremiah said it was the other way around, that, that um, we were not taking them away in order to ensure Judah's faithfulness. In fact, they were being taken away to preserve them from Judah's unfaithfulness to their God. It seemed a very strange perspective to me from this wild-eyed prophet who obviously wasn't in the inner circle there in Jerusalem. But at the same time, that worked with us in our purposes of having these young men want to go with us back to Babylon. And so I was all for this um, Jeremiah's perspective. Well, after we return to Babylon, just after we get there, and we lay out the way lay of the land, we, we assign them to their dorms, and we bring them down for their first wonderful meal. And there's some of them. I, I call them the squad. There's always some that won't go along, right? And these, these four, led by one, the one that we had named Belshazzar, he came to me and he said that they were not able to eat the food. He couldn't defile himself by taking and eating some of the foods and the wine which the king had provided, that these were contrary to the commands of his God. Now, I could have just ended this right away. But I was tired. 
We had just come from a, from a month-long caravan from Jerusalem back to Babylon. And, and now, I, I didn't want to stir up a cause. I didn't want to stir up a reason for resistance among these young men just as we were getting started. And Daniel seemed like a, like, like a reasonable youth. Surprising for his age. And so I, I, I said... I said to him, I thought I would reason with him, I said, now, if you don't eat the food that's provided and you are looking poorly, that you, that you are, are uh, not as healthy as the others because you don't eat the good food that's provided, the king's going to require it of me. I'm going to have to answer for that. That could be my head. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say the king gave me instructions to build a highway. And he provides all of the resources that are needed in order to build an, a great and excellent and strong highway. And so we begin to build the highway, but I decide really all of those resources are not necessary. I'm, I'm not going to use all of that. But later on, when the king rolls the army out of, out of Babylon and down, to, down towards Egypt, and we begin to travel this new highway... And the highway is washed out here. And there are potholes there. And the wheels and the chariots get broken. And as a result of all of this, King Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful, long may he reign, his advance of the army down to Egypt is not successful. What do you think the king would do to me then? Yeah, that would be my head. I explained to Daniel, you are the king's personal project. He has great plans and ambitions for you. He is going to pour the best of his resources in you, and he wants the results of his investment. And so if you are looking poorly, if you are losing energy, if you are not at your best through this time of training, then my head's the one that's going to be on the line. I can't... I can't be the one to give you permission to do something that is going to put myself at risk. That's what I told him. Now, Daniel was a, was a, a reasonable young man. He, he, he was different than most. You know, in, in a multicultural kingdom like Babylon, there are always different perspectives. And sometimes those different perspectives, sometimes they just act like a jerk. But Daniel wasn't a jerk. He was different. He had, he had understanding. He was able to show empathy toward others without sacrificing his own convictions. And so Daniel did something unusual. Instead of appealing, which would have had to be to the king himself, the great and powerful, long may he reign, but Daniel went down the food chain. Daniel approached the steward who was responsible for directly providing the food for he and his squad. And... Daniel brought a proposal. He, he suggested, what if we do this? What if just for 10 days, 10 little short days, in those 10 days, we, we only eat vegetables and drink water. We don't eat the meats and we don't partake of the wine that comes from the king tables just for these 10 days. And after that, you examine us. And if any way we do not look, any way we look less than the others in the group who have been eating all the king's food, then you do to us according to whatever you see. I leave the outcome in your hands. 
Well, the steward, as I talked with him later, the steward considered that idea and he thought to himself, well, 10 days worth of groceries, that would give me a little margin in my budget. I could do something with that. But not only that, 10 days isn't enough to do any real harm, any real damage, and then we can point out the difference and we can put all of this nonsense behind us. And so he agreed. And they had left me completely out of it, which was the best place for me to be. And so 10 days later, it's time for the exam. And what is going to happen? Now is the time for us to end these veggie tales and get back to the king's table once and for all. And so we examined them. We looked very closely because we expected that the results would be obvious. We expected that they would be tired and more lethargic and have less energy and look pale and peaked and just not be up to par with all of the others. Tired and listless. And as we examined them, we found just the opposite. In fact, they were fitter and fatter and better than any of the other youths who had been eating all of the good foods from the king's table. We said, well, this is different. How many vegetables have you been feeding them? Now, some of you are probably jumping to conclusions already. Some of you are probably saying, well, yeah, it's because that food at the king's table, that's full of fat and all this other stuff that's not good for you. All of us should be eating only vegetables and we'd all be healthier. In fact, there's probably a, there's probably a Daniel's diet being marketed out there somewhere. But if you land there, you'll, you'd miss the point that even I was starting to see. It was nagging at the back of my understanding already. In fact, their names, which we had tried to take away, their names pointed to the real answer to why the difference. When they deliberately chose to trust themselves to God as their judge and to do what he said, then they found that Yahweh was gracious, that Yahweh was their help. We were beginning to see that there was more to Daniel than we had expected. There was more to Daniel than we had expected because there was more to Daniel's God than we had expected. We saw it not only in this episode with the food, but day by day through the entire program. How they maintained their character, their integrity, who they were in the midst of of the program of what we would make and mold them to be. And so at the end of three years, it's graduation. It's completion of our program. It's commencement into the new. And so we put our graduation robes on and we had our ceremonies. And they all came before the king. And now was the time for the king's examination. And the king would examine each one of them carefully. And then he would place them in a position according to their abilities. Some would be posted in a place soon forgotten. Others could possibly be elevated even into the circle of the king's closest advisors. This was an important moment. And so as the king examined each of the graduates, there were none other found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In fact, these four were ten times better than any of the others. And Daniel had something special. Daniel had the ability to understand divine dreams and visions and what God himself was saying to us. 
You can imagine that was pretty important to King Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful, long may he reign. So, Nebuchadnezzar took these four and he put them into his circle of his closest advisors. And there, as they advised the king, Nebuchadnezzar found them wiser and with greater understanding than all of the diviners and the magis, the our spiritual sages and wise men of Babylon. These were even better than they. In fact, God had placed close to King Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful, long may he reign. God had placed next to Nebuchadnezzar somebody who would be able to tell him in the years ahead the thing he would really need to know. But that's another story. I get a little ahead of myself, and so I need to save that one. And it's, it's, it's time for the humble Ashpenaz, the chief of staff of King Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful, long may he reign, for now. Thank you for being with you. God's basket of figs. Anybody want to? They're really good. The thing I want us to get out of the book of Daniel, out of Daniel chapter 1, is this. One way or another, at this, at this moment in our world, in our culture, in our society, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's in social media, you are going to have your identity challenged. You're going you're to receive pushback. There's an agenda to advance, and if you're contrary to it in this new age of intolerance, now more than ever, you, you're going to be pushed to not only agree, but also to say, to affirm, and to do the things that others insist that you should. And if you don't, you're going to be canceled. You're going to be targeted. You're going to be labeled as a fascist, a hater. Now, wait a minute. If you don't march in lockstep, group think, and say what they say you must affirm and agree and support, if you don't say the right things or think the right way, you're going to be targeted. Who's the fascist? Who's the hater? That's the environment that we now live in. And what are we going to do in that kind of environment? How are we going to not only survive, keep our heads down, stay out of trouble, how are we going to be used by God as his witness, like Daniel, in the midst of this kind of moment? That's the question for us. We can lay low. But if we want to be like Daniel, if we would, as the old hymn says, dare to be a Daniel... How do we do that? That's where the issue really becomes more difficult. And that's what Daniel chapter 1 describes for us. Daniel chapter 1 is to give Israel, not only for the Babylonian captivity, but long after that, under Persia, and even after that, under the Romans, how can Israel as a people and individuals live out their mandate to be God's difference in the midst of the world? 
one of the things that Daniel knew, one of the things that Daniel seems to live out is it's not so important what others say about you. It's what God says about you. Your identity is not pressed upon you by others. Your identity is given to you by God and it's lived out in the choices that you determine day by day. It's not what others tell you to do. It's what God says to do in determining I will follow him. Funny, interesting thing in this new chapter, in this first chapter, is that Daniel and his cohort are very quickly given new names, aren't they? They're given new identities. And yet, even as we're reading the rest of the story, after they've been given those new names, what names do we know them by? We continue to know them not as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the names that their detractors call them out as in chapter 2, but we know them in the story as still Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That God is my judge. That who is like God? That the Lord is gracious and the Lord is my help. And as they remembered that, others saw it in them. They were able to maintain their identity. Daniel is still Daniel. He will continue to be Daniel till the end of King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Daniel will still be Daniel long after Babylon is gone. Your identity is not what others press upon you. Your identity is in who God says you are. Don't be bullied. In the midst, of, in the midst of, a, of a moment when there are wrongs and there are injustices and something ought to be done, the right action should be taken, but in the midst of that, don't be bullied to go along with a hijacked agenda that is going not towards freedom and equality, but captivity. In the midst of a pandemic, we balance mandates like wearing a mask, Limiting the number of people we'll have gathered together in the room. And yet, in California, now they've been told, in the midst of your worship of the Lord, you're not allowed to sing. Okay? What will we do if we're told we're not allowed to sing? I'm not sure. But I can tell you this. In the midst of phase one, I'll tell you now, because we're past that. In the midst of phase one, when nobody was to, was to visit anybody, pastors still did pastoral visits. Because that's what God calls us to do. Whether we're allowed to do it or not is not the point. It's what has God told you to do because the cry of John and Peter still stands, I must obey God rather than men. And that's a choice that is set before you and I in little ways or in big ways every day. And it's not the big ways that actually define who we are. It's the little ways. It's the small choices the little compromises that we're tempted to make and whether we do or not, those are the ones that are going to turn us. Those are the ones that are going to determine who we'll, who we'll be. The best way for you and I to make a difference in the midst of this kind of moment, the best way for us to make a difference is the way that Daniel made a difference. The best way for us to make a difference is to be different. At a time when everybody is being pressed to be the shame. I'm not saying be different in an obstinate way. I'm not saying be, be different in a difficult. I'm not saying be different as a jerk. But be different. Be unique. Be what they would really like to see if things could be as they're supposed to be. If anybody can be different, we can be different. Because our God has shown us the way. 
Our God is gracious, and our God is our help. So, listen to those around you. Understand where they're coming from. Listen and understand others, but believe and follow Jesus. That's why the commission the Lord gave his church, the commission that we grab hold of still today, to, 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 to go and, and make disciples, baptizing and, and teaching them to observe all things as I've commanded you. We've expressed it as go to others around, them, inv- around you, invite them into God's family, and build one another up as what? Followers of Jesus. Listen and understand what's going on around us. But you and I, you and I must believe and follow Jesus. Even if Nebu doesn't matter, is king for a time, God is the one we answer to. God is the one who is gracious. There is none like him. He is our help. So we will follow Jesus. We will determine to be not who they press us to be. We will determine to be who God says I am. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can trust you and rely on you. Father, we thank you that you are our help. We thank you, Father, that you give us courage. Not, not, uh, Lord, merely in command, But, Father, you give us courage in the record of those who have gone before us. You give us courage in the way that you marvelously use somebody like Daniel at the centers of world influence. And if you can do that with him, then surely you could do something with us in the midst of a much smaller circle of influence where you've placed us in a neighborhood among friends, in a workplace, in the midst of school. So, Father, use us. Father, give us the courage to follow you, to follow the things that our Lord has said in his word. Lord, open up this book to us that you would fill our, feed our souls from it. And then, Lord, walk with us in your glory, in your light, that we might We might be that one place near another to be able to tell them what they need at the time when they need it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.